Our scripture reading this morning is going to come from Deuteronomy. So if you'd like to turn there, I'll give you a moment. And if you're using one of the Bibles in the back, that's page 151. We're going to be Deuteronomy 6. And we're going to look at uh, verses 4 through 9 of Deuteronomy 6. Just as a quick catch-up, Deuteronomy takes place 40 years after the law was given on Mount Sinai. So Moses stands with a new generation of Israelites, uh, those that were very, very young at the time when the original law was given. And Moses is preaching a sermon. Deuteronomy is largely a series of sermons given by Moses. So he's preaching again to a new generation. And, as he, and after, he sums up the law given on Sinai in chapter 5. He gives us something new in chapter 6. So let's read Deuteronomy 6 on the brink of uh, them entering the promised land, how God wants them to live, how God wants his people to act and think. We read verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of God. Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everybody. And for those that you cannot see, good morning. All right. Let me go ahead and just open us up in prayer again. Jesus, our request this morning is very simple. And the request is that your spirit would anoint me so that what we hear are not the words of men, but the words from God. And that your spirit would move in the hearts of those hearing here this morning and those listening at home so that you would be glorified and honored, not just this day, but every day in each home. We ask this Christ in your name. Amen. Let me ask you a question. If you could get a return on your investment far beyond a $1.3 billion Powerball, would you do it? Would you want to make an impact in your life and in your family that reaps benefits far beyond your wildest dreams? Would you want to make an investment in the life of your children and your spouse that long after you're gone, it remains and continues on for generation after generation? Hopefully you've answered yes to those questions. Hopefully the answer is yes. I want to make an investment in my life, in my family's life, that lasts 
far beyond the days of, of my sojourning on this earth. And the question is, how do I do that? And the answer is family worship. Family worship. And so family worship is our theme this morning. It's what I'm covering. It's the next series in, in this bigger theme that we are talking about uh, called identity. And so Mark opened us up on this theme, discussing that our identity is not in what we do, but it's in who we are, disciples of Christ. Pastor Jonathan opened us up uh, following that. Uh, Pastor Jonathan discussed the importance of our identity not being lone rangers for Jesus, but connected to the local church. And so this morning, I want our minds and those listening to be thinking about how does identity and family worship connect? Family worship is an amazing gift from God. It's an amazing gift from God. And I want us to understand a little bit more about why. Why is it such a gift? Why should we be engaged in, in doing it? And so... Uh, this morning, I wanted to find a couple terms before we get started, because some of you may not even know what I'm talking about, family worship. You may think this is like a cultic thing, a weird thing. What, what, is, what are we talking about? You come into my house, and we're sitting around reading the Bible and singing. You may have thought, I just walked into something very weird and awkward. And I just want you to know, this is not weird. It's not awkward. Um, so here's some terminology. Family worship is simply, it's worship given to God by all the members of the home. That's what family, how I'm going to define it this morning. It's worship given to God by all the members of the home. Two, identity. It's, it's a kind of a very important term since it's our theme. What is identity? Basically, what is your personal value? What gives you worth? What drives you? And even more down to the root, what are you living for? Identity. Who am I? What am I doing? What am I living for? Identity. The last term is worship. This is important. There's two parts to worship. The first part is the expression of awe and reverence given to someone or an object. That's the first part of worship, right? The expression of awe and reverence given to someone or some object. But secondly, if you're giving yourself to someone or something as an object of worship, you are then going to be formed by that object or someone, correct? Would you agree with that? If what you're worshiping or who you're worshiping it gives you identity, then you're going to be formed by that thing you're worshiping, right? Simple. A father tries to find his identity in his job, and he worships his job, his career. He's going to be motivated by that, and he loses his job, and he loses his mind because his identity is wrapped up in his job. He worships his job, okay? So those are the three terms that, that I really want us to understand as we talk about this aspect of family worship. I personally love this subject. Family worship's near and dear to my house. It's near and dear to my heart. It's near and dear to my family. And I just kind of want to paint one or two scenarios to see which one maybe you could relate to. Early on, when I thought about family worship, I thought, oh, man, it, it sounds like every Christian's doing this, and, and I need to do it. And I had this picture, because I was reading Puritans about family worship, of, of, of this. And this is how I originally started doing family worship. Okay, everybody's around a table. All the kids are shoulders back, chins up, arms on the table. 
I got a nice little candle in the middle of the table. Everybody's got their own copy of the 1689 or Heidelberg Confession of Faith. And the, the Bible's turned open, and I begin to read almost from Genesis to Revelation with a little background of Yanni just to set the mode and the tone. And, and no one's fighting, no one's yelling, no one's screaming. It's just euphoric and wonderful. And I was obviously quickly discouraged with that reality. Uh, and ended up doing more repenting than worshiping because I, got, I was trying to make something that just wasn't realistic. So maybe that's the ideal when we talk about family worship, whether you're here or listening uh, this morning. Um, but here's the real in the Nasita household. All right, family worship, here we go. Ah! Kids running around. I'm grabbing the Bible. I got one kid here. And mom's grabbing the other two boys. And we're all finally sitting down. It's a half hour, at least a half hour has gone by. Um, and we're all sitting around, and I open up the Bible. Okay, here we go. You guys ready? Matthew. Boy, kids, you ready? We're going to read Matthew. All right. All right. So Jesus was walking through. Quit it. What? what? And you look up, and Ashley's dealing with one of the kids. What, what's going on over here? Hey, you two better stop it. Listen, we're having family worship. We're having family worship here, and you better knock it off, or I will discipline you, all right? And so, and then it's like, you start reading again, and the kids start jumping on the chairs, and it's, it's nothing of worship. It's not always that way in the Nasita home, but that was the real. It's like, how do I do this? And it almost as a father was like, forget it. Man, I'm supposed to walk away feeling like I'm this awesome dad and we all just got caught up to the third heavens. And, and I actually just end up leaving feeling like I escaped the clutches of hell. And, and it's like, this is worship? And it's like, I don't even want to do this anymore. So you could probably relate somewhere in the middle. Those are some extremes. But the point is, family worship can be difficult. And I'm not talking to you about the method of family worship this morning. I don't want you to get caught up on the do's and don'ts of family worship this morning. What I want our hearts and and beg God for us to see is that we need to, in order to save the home in America and in the church, and in order to save the next generation, we have got to get the house back to a regular and routine time of worshiping the creator and sustainer of the earth. We have to. And if family worship is not a central pole, a rock in the center of your home, then something or someone else is. And life's revolving around that thing. And the people of that household are developing identity complexes because of that thing. And so we need to get back. We need to get back to the roots of the early days of the redemptive story when there was no, quote, New Testament church or there was no Old Testament um, system or structure of worship, but the people of God were worshiping as families and the family was the church and they were telling the stories and acts of God to each other in each other's huts and homes. That's how the story of redemption began. And there's power in that. And as Grant read this morning, that's Deuteronomy 6. So that's my heart this morning. And here's what we're going to cover. Basically, the why, what, and how. The why, what, and how. 
Why have family worship? That's my first point. Two, what does the Bible say about family worship? And then three, how do we have family worship? So the why, what, and how. So let me begin with the why. Why have family worship? Well, here's my first reason of why I think we need to be having family worship in the home, right? It's this. Family worship redirects identity. Family worship redirects identity. Remember, identity gives is who am I, what am I, what's my value, what's my worth, what am I living for? All right, and the passage I want to go to, Grant already read one. I'm not going to read that again, but it's in Exodus 20. And it's going all the way back to the Ten Commandments, and it's very simple. And I'm going to read this one, and then I'm going to read Romans 1. So Exodus 20, God says in in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath. Notice verse 5. Listen very closely to this. You shall not bow down to them or serve them because I am a jealous God. Okay, there's the beginning of identity. God shows up and he says, listen, I'm the Lord. He reveals himself first always. He's the pursuer. We're the rebellious people. We, he's pursuing us as I am the Lord your God. He lets them know it wasn't the little wooden carving that they dipped in gold and shoved in their pocket and had all their kids carry around that redeemed them out of Egypt. It was Jehovah. It was the Lord, their God. So he tells them, listen, I did this. So they make a connection. And then he says, this is what I demand. That you don't worship or serve anyone or any other thing except me. Why? Because I'm jealous. Okay? All right? Now, what's the problem? That's a good thing. This is a good thing. God's telling us stuff we could left to ourselves never figure out. But what happens? Romans 1 tells us what our problem is. Romans 1 says, for they exchange, Romans 1.25, for they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they invert it. Okay? They worship the created things rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. That's what Romans 1 tells us every human being does. For instead of worshiping God, the creator, they ended up worshiping the created things. And so that's where our identity problem begins. That is the issue of all of humanity. That's the issue of every human person sitting in this room. Is Our constant tendency is to worship the created rather than the creator. Our constant tendency is to find value and self-worth and things rather than reminding yourself my value and self-worth is in Jesus. Does that make sense? So what you worship, we can say it this way, identifies you. And what you identify to ends up being what you worship. What you worship identifies you. And the problem with identity 
within the home and, and a lack of clarity of who this home's serving and what this home is serving is that we'll, we'll get into this some more. Identity then leads into idolatry. You see that? Instead of worshiping God, the creator, the king of kings and lord of lords, we reject him, his authority, his rule, and we say, I need to have justification of my existence. And that comes in the form of X amount of zeros behind my paycheck. It comes with the size of my house. It comes with the si- how many children I have. So my value and worth is found in these things. It's in control. As long as if I'm the husband of this home and I control my wife, then I have identity. And God says, no. Your identity is in what you are, your role, or what you do. It's in me. And what happens is if we worship those things, then we make those good things God things. Are we following? Do you see this in your heart? It's, a, it's, it's, it's dangerous. So the glory of family worship, my first point, is this, is we constantly, when you get the family together, you get the family together, redirect identity back up to Jesus and say, okay, I'm really sorry. I've exasperated my family. I've been really working too much. I I know I enjoy it. I've neglected my wife. Family, I want you guys to know I'm sorry. My identity isn't in my job. It's in Jesus. I'm a disciple, and I failed exemplifying that to you. I'm sorry. That's a good thing, isn't it? And now you bring children, right? Children. More delicate than the flake of snow that you wiped off of your windshield this morning into your home, and you're telling them to live for Jesus when all the time they're watching you live for the world. And you wonder why they're all confused. They follow your identity, and if your identity is in stuff and things rather than Christ, then they're just going to be little idol worshipers just like you. Rather, kingdom worshipers. Let me put this in my life. My whole, my early childhood, it, I was, uh, my God was baseball. So my identity was baseball. What I lived for, breathed for, literally, what got me through high school and what got me into college was baseball. That was what I was living for. People said, do you know Sam Nasita? It was, oh yeah, he's the baseball player. It's, it you know, sounds good at the time, but sadly embarrassing. That's all I am, I'm a baseball player. <laughs> um, not an image bearer of God or anything. And so um, that's, what I, that's what drove me. That's what made me want to be successful. That, and, and what happened was when I couldn't, perform well, that good thing, baseball, became a very bad thing because now I started accusing God. God must hate me. God must not love me because I'm not very successful in baseball. I went 0 for 4. I have a 280 batting average. And I would always blame God when my idol wasn't performing well and giving me what I needed. You follow me? And so I would do this. That was my idol, until God radically came into my life and said, no, Sam, baseball didn't redeem you. Baseball didn't die on the cross for you. Baseball did not purchase you and, and rise from the dead. And baseball's not seated at the right hand of the Father for you. My son Jesus is. And so my identity from being an athlete and a baseball player, going to the major leagues, shifted. And I was totally fine with letting that go because I realized, behold, I'm the Lord your God and I brought you out of Egypt. 
Now I can properly enjoy baseball. And I did. I enjoyed it. Because now my team became an evangelism field. Now my team became, hey, I'm making disciples out of all you. And they knew it. I, stopped, I, was, I wasn't invited to the parties anymore because they knew I didn't drink anymore. But I love those bus rides. Hey, come here, Luke. Let's talk about Jesus. And it got to the point where I just wasn't interested in it. And I quit because I felt God was calling me something else. You see, so that's my story. In my home, my sons talk about identity here. My sons, Noah, you know, he's a smart kid, and I'm thankful to God for that because he takes after his mother in that. And um, we, we encourage discipline and hard work in the house. And Noah is an all-A student, and I'm thankful for that. But if he gets a B, his world starts collapsing. And I always say to him, son, I'm glad you got a B, because your acceptance on, by, uh, God doesn't accept you based upon the A. He accepts you based upon Jesus. And so his life begins to collapse, and he feels like a failure because he got a B. His identity isn't an A. Mom and dad must accept me, and I must be okay as long as I get A's. But if I get a B, something's wrong with me and dad, and something has to be wrong vertically between me and God. And see, we're no different, are we not, adults? We do the exact same thing. We do the exact same thing with different areas of our life. And so family worship is a time to get together and talk about these identity crises that we have on a continual basis, right? What about business? Or money, identity, what's the value of your home? What, how much money are you making? Are you okay with stepping away from your area of responsibility if God were to call you to do that? All these are just some areas that we have to examine. So family worship redirects identity back to the God of the Bible and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? And family worship is a time for fathers and mothers to come together and expose those identity crises, say it's okay because Jesus died not for you to get A's, but so your sins can be forgiven and you can have eternal life with him. Let me give you one example of this, okay? In Matthew 4, 18, I want to show you this because it reinforces this whole identity shift. And in Matthew 4, 18, what we have is, is the calling of Matthew. And it's really quite powerful because it says, um, here's some pages turning, I'll, I'll just wait. Matthew four eighteen. While they were walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Okay. They were fishermen, identity, role, responsibilities. And, he, and Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. There it was, a shift in identity. Men who knew how to fish, men who lived made a living fishing, knew their trade, did it well, worked hard, and Jesus says, put down that net and I'm going to make you a fisher of men now. And they said, okay, that's what I'm talking about. 
If Jesus called you away from your net, what would your response be? Oh, what would I do? What would happen? How's, how's God going to provide? What would your kids see you respond? You see, there was a shift in identity. That's all they knew. But as soon as Jesus shows up, everything changes for every human being and needs to change. Because it's not about what I do now. It's about who I am. And he's going to use the who I am, washing toilets, doing a staffing company, fishing, managing a business, teaching. He's going to use you in any way he wants you to be. But he says, don't idolize that thing because that's not God. I'm God. And that's when you enjoy God the most, is when you let God things be God things and stay away from making the idols and the created things God things. Okay? So, why a family worship? Because we desperately need to be redirected with our identity. Who am I? What's my value? What's my purpose? And our children desperately need that shepherding. Second reason of why a family worship Because it confronts idolatry. Again, these dovetail. If my identity is in the created thing, and that's where I get my value, then we default into idolatry, which is worshiping and giving all of our time and best energies into that thing. Right? So, you guys have probably heard this before. If our hearts are idol factories... Right? You probably have heard that the human heart's an idol factory. We just create idols. I don't know who said it, but somebody said it. But my point is this. If our hearts then are idol factories, then the home is the distribution plant. If the human heart is an idol factory, meaning we take everything that God says is very good, and we say, no, that's mine. I'm going to worship that and serve that, and, and I'm going to own that and make that an idol, then the home is the distribution plant. What do I mean? What I mean is the home is the place where we bring in everything at most everything that the world is worshiping into the home to enjoy, but we never talk about how to freely enjoy things but still keep our identity in Jesus. We bring in conversations, fathers and mothers. We bring in fights. Mom and Dad, what are you fighting about? Oh, it's money again. Hmm, it's kind of an important theme in our household I'm gathering. What's Mom and Dad fighting about this time? Dad wants his way and he's not getting it. That's kind of an important theme in our household. What's mom and dad fighting about this time? The car's, it, the car's too old. We need a new vehicle. Stuff and possessions. That's kind of a common theme. Our children are picking up on the conversations. They pick up on the hot spots. They pick up on what's most important. And so... The heart is already desperately sick. Why bring that all into the home and distribute it into their hands and their eyes and say, run with it? Let me read you from a great book, which I recommend, The Home, The Beautiful by J.R. Miller. It's excellent on various topics. Family worship is one of them. But he says this. And I want you, as I read this, to specifically think about the home. Okay? So after it's been built, the painters come in and painted, everything's been furnished, and everything looks wonderful. He says, suppose everybody is happy, 
What more is needed to complete the ideal home? If the answer in one word is not God, if we leave him out, our most perfect home will be but like a marble statue with all the grace and beauty of life, but having neither breath nor heart throb. In other words, he's saying some of us, our homes betray us. It's extremely nice, extremely uh, well put together, but is that communicating an idol to the children if God's not involved in any of that? That's what he's saying. He says, we need the divine blessing on everything we have and everything we do. Surely there is no work, no plan, no undertaking on which we so much need God's benediction as upon our home. Amen. And nothing else are so many sacred interests and such momentous responsibilities involved. Nowhere else in life do we meet such difficult and delicate duties. And nothing else is failure so disastrous. We're talking about generational failures. That's disastrous. A business venture may miscarry, may fail, and will lead to disappointment, some financial loss, some hardship. But if one's home is, is failing, who can tell the wreck and sorrow that may result? If we need the divine blessing on some little work of an hour, Lord, please bless this sermon. Lord, please bless this teaching. Lord, please bless whatever it is we ask God to bless. How much more do we need it to the setting up of our home? Which carries in itself our own happiness and the happiness of the hearts that are dearest to us and the eternal destinies of souls that shall creep into our bosom and find shelter beneath our roof. That's a really good word. Because the American dream is establishing this home that most, though have the banner of Jesus, are like marble statues. And it's time to be honest with that. It's just time to, for me to examine my home. Where is Jesus in this home? It's a nice marble countertop. It's a beautiful drape. That's a wonderful, um, uh, what are those fancy, a Vitamix mixer. <laughs> It's, it's all wonderful, but is Jesus in the center of that home? Do your kids know that he is more important than all the beauty of your home you spend so much time taking care of? See, why family worship is important because it confronts idolatry, and we bring that into the home. We bring it into the home. Let me just lay out some areas that, that family worship gets to confront. And this is, this is good stuff that we get to confront during family worship. I already kind of mentioned, I won't stay a lot of time on it, but standard of living is one area that as a family, during family worship, you get to confront. You get to talk about, you know, yeah, we do have a lot, son or, or daughter. But man, when I was in Ecuador, they don't have a lot. And they were a lot more happier. Why do you suppose that is? See, what you're doing is you're taking the American idea that the more you have, the happier you'll be, and you're juxtaposing it, you're comparing it to the reality that people in Ecuador who don't have anything are happier than you. How can that be? And that's a paradigm in your kids that you need to destroy. More stuff does not mean happier. What makes you happier is him who holds joy in his right hand and pleasures forevermore. His name's Jesus. 
Secondly, conversations. This is important. Parents, listen to me, please. You may say, well, Sam hasn't been to my house. I definitely have no marble. I got some third grade linoleum. That's, that's my home. I have no marble. So let me say this. Conversations. What types of conversations are taking place in your home? Don't fall asleep on this. What types of conversations are taking place in your home? Do those conversations reveal what's most important to you as a father to your son? Listen, son, you don't make this team. I love you, but... You know, you're going to play sports. I just sorry, you're going to play. You need to learn discipline. Dad, do you ever put that ultimatum out there for spiritual things? Some, some people in our own church, they're home struggling because the conversations are not edifying. If, if what is true, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and all that my dad talks about is money and success and being a man and being strong and never failing, then what is your child's idol going to be? What's it going to be? What are the conversations? If out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and there's no Jesus there's no praise. There's no redirecting upward back the, the praise and glory to whom it deserves it. Then what are your children learning? Unfortunately, most homes in America are failing at this. That's why, and I'm going to condemn myself here in my position, that's why people look for youth pastors to lead their home. See, when we when we do not assume responsibility that God places on fathers and mothers, we begin to delegate responsibility. That's sin. When you fail to assume responsibility, you will always look someplace to delegate that responsibility. God says, no, assume fathers and mothers your responsibility. Then look to the leadership of the church and those in position to help shepherd, direct, corral, and help. But never shun the responsibility and redirect it to somebody else. Never. Ever do that. So the conversations in the home should be sweet. Oh, man, they should be edifying. They should be nurturing. They should be sharp. They should be direct. But, man, they should come with love and joy and gentleness at the same time. This is your home. This is the place where we are inviting the glory of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to dwell, come down, and bless. And tone and words matter just as much as the subject. Gadgets and technology is another area in which family Worship can confront gadgets and technology. Dad, if you come home from a long day of work and you immediately check out and go to the computer while mom's back in the room doing something else, that's, that's, an, that's an identity issue. 
There's something possibly going on. If that's your rhythm, you come home, you don't check in, don't spend time with the family, you're not engaged in any sort of worship, okay, everybody tell me what's going on, but you check out, go do your thing, there's an identity issue going on there because you're saying you're finding greater value and worth and have something more important to do than to love your wife and lead your family. And you need to look into that. Why is that? Why is it easier for dad to check out than it is to be engaged? Youth and technology and gadgets, that's, it's just, it is. And I don't need to say a lot with this. We all know what, what the world's coming to. This is easier than this. It just is. You guys, if you don't see it, we'll pray for you. <laughs> but it's there. Um, again, am I saying technology's bad? No. Am I saying a marble uh, countertop, thank you, is bad? No. Those are good things that we make God things, and that's bad. That's what idolatry does, is when we begin to take the created things and deify them and want those things to do something for us that really, if we're honest, we're not getting from God. And that's the problem. That's the whole fall. That's why we're in this mess is because God said, enjoy me forever. And man and woman said, no, I want what you've got and I want to be in power and control and I'm going to reject that and do it my way. It's the simple story. God wants us, did he not say, I give you things freely to enjoy, but just don't worship those things. So here are some things that in the home underneath why the family worship can confront idolatry. Here are some things that I think are bigger things for us to pay attention to, some major significant areas of life that you can spend time talking about. Um, And and it only can come in the context of, of family worship. And it's this, sorrow. How is your family gonna deal with sorrow? Brokenness. Fear, failure, sexual purity, right? Those are all big themes. Technology and and gadgets and things of the world can never deal with the root of bitterness or sorrow. The gospel can. And we want our kids to know how to deal with those root issues so that they keep their identity in Christ. All right, the second or sorry, the third, underneath why, why have family worship? We've looked at identity. We've looked at idolatry. Third is celebration. And I'm going to kind of hurry up on these. Um, the celebration is this. God wants us to celebrate. The home should be a, a place of wonderful celebration. It shouldn't be the home of just correction and discipline, but a home of celebration. The prodigal son, there's a huge celebration. So um, does your home celebrate? I hope so. What does it celebrate? Here are some things that we can celebrate during family worship. The first thing is failure. It's okay to celebrate failure. It's okay to say, you know what, son, you did a good job. You tried, but you spelled chair, C-H-I-A-R. It's okay. It's all right. I love you anyway. You're nervous. He's not embarrassed of that. He knows it wasn't a failure because... That really bothered him. So I can say, listen, son, Christ didn't die for that. Confession of sin. We can repent of that. We can rejoice, not repent of that. We can rejoice in confession of sin. Your home should be a place where your children come in and say, hey, I stole, I lied, without feeling like they're going to get tossed by the incredible Hulk across the world. You want confession of sin. 
Confessing sin leads to repentance, and that leads to faith, and that's a good thing. God's provision. You can rejoice always over that, right? Thank you for this home. Someone else's success. You can celebrate that. Trials. Thank you, God. You're teaching your kids the reality that life's not always easy. Trials are going to come. So, those are just three. All right, why? Why have family worship? What time have we got here, of course? Um, it's just what happens when you don't do this very often. It's my fault. And they always tell me, don't spend your time on the first point. I'm sorry. I, I, I just don't do this often. Okay, so it's 11.53. All right. Um, let me just skip the what. Let me give you this. For those listening, I'm sorry. Um, the what. What does the Bible say about family worship? Here's, I'm just going to give you one passage and say one thing about it. Psalm 78, 5 through 7. Psalm 78, 5 through 7. The Bible speaks about family worship all throughout. There's no command, thou shalt not, and I know we like commands, but it's implied, it's seen, it's practiced. And this is what it says. Fathers, you're responsible for setting up the worship of your home. So fathers, go home, meditate on that, think about that. Psalm 78, 5 through 7. All right. Third point, the how. How do we have family worship? And here's the only thing I want to say. There's no right or wrong way. Make it fun. Especially if you have little kids. Act like you're Goliath and make your littlest one David. Reenact it. Jump off the couch if you have to. If, if someone walks into family worship it shouldn't feel like there's a, 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 a burial ceremony taking place. There should be reverence. Yes, you can figure out where that line is found. But they, it's fun. It's a story. So make it lively. Make it enjoyable. Two, maybe show a movie. Watch a biography. There's some things we've done. Read a biography. We've shown some movies. There's all sorts of ways to do it. If you're single in here, this, underneath this point, I've, I just want to say to single men, Men, your identity is not in finding a wife. It's preparing how to lead your home. So if you're in there like, this doesn't pertain to me, I don't have a family, wrong, time out. If you're single in here, your goal is not to find the wife as fast as you can, marry and start having kids. It's to become a disciple of Christ, keep your identity in Jesus, so you are prepared to lead your family when God's pleased to give you a wife and children. Women, your identity isn't getting married if you're single, right? Too many single women mess up the whole marriage from the get-go because the women look to the man as the Savior rather than to the Savior, Jesus Christ. So those are good things, wanting to get married, but don't make them a God thing and don't get your identity in those things. And so when you were raising your teenagers, they're obviously wanting to have a significant other, but teach them, direct them, redirect them back up to their identities in Jesus, not the boys or the girls. Husbands and wives. Let me just say this. Husbands, if, if you don't feel like leading your home and family worship out of insecurity, then invite your wife to do it. My wife's excellent at doing family worship. She just is. When I'm at work, I can't lead family worship. And so I invite her to do family worship. She's your helpmeet. Your masculinity hasn't decreased. Your, your role hasn't changed. You're just recognizing an area where your wife can come along and bless you and your family. And, but husbands, again, 
If you don't want to lead this, why? Psalm 78, 50, or Psalm 78, 5 through 7, why? So, I really rushed through those last two points, and I apologize. That's like a failure in, in, in preaching. So, my identity is not my failure. It's in Jesus, thankfully. <laughs> um, so, I'm going to go ahead and invite the band back up here um, because I'm going to conclude. Um, and here's what I want to conclude with. One, establish consistent and regular worship in the home. That's what I want you to go home. Evaluate the home and say, is there time when I can establish consistent and regular worship? Because that's going to reap a blessing for a lifetime. That's way more valuable than $1.3 billion. Two, whether you're single, you're a male or female, or you are home and you do already have scheduled family worship time, always evaluate and reevaluate. Are we going through the motions or are we really truly keeping all of our identity in Jesus here? Is he truly our savior or is something else snuck into this home that we're clinging to? So evaluate and reevaluate. Amen? All right, let me pray. Jesus, I want to thank you that you save sinners and you give identity and value and worth that nothing or anyone else in the world can possibly give us. Because you deal with the greatest issue, our sin, and you give us that which we cannot merit, a perfect righteousness. So thank you, Jesus. Would you bless each home here? May it be truly a sanctuary, a place where your spirit dwells, where disciples are made, and for generations to come, the name of Jesus will be upheld. Thank you, Jesus. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. I stand and respond. Thank you.